0: Hi, this is Alan Adamson, author of Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do Not Buy to Gain Market Advantage. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you
1: keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection info with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Alan Adamson to talk about his book, Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do Not Buy to Gain Market Advantage, published by Matt Holt Books. For more than 30 years, Alan Adamson has helped launch, nurture, and reinvent brands ranging from startups to nonprofits to companies known worldwide in categories including packaged goods, technology, healthcare, financial services, hospitality, and entertainment. His philosophy, substantiated over time, is that successful brands stand for something that is both different and relevant and simple for the consumers to understand. A noted expert in all disciplines of branding, Alan has worked on the agency side for several iconic firms, including Ogilvy and Mather and DMBnB formerly known as Darcy Macius, Benton and Boll. Sorry, it's the old ad guy in me. And on the client side for Unilever, he was chairman of Landor Associates, a global brand consultancy where, under his leadership, the company worked with brands including Accenture, GE, Johnson & Johnson, FedEx, HBO, Marriott, MetLife, Procter & Gamble, Sony, and Verizon. Allen's four previous books are Brand Simple, How the Best Brands Keep It Simple and Succeed, Brand Digital, Simple Ways Top Brands Succeed in the Digital World, The Edge, 50 Tips from Brands That Lead, and Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World, which was featured on the Marketing Book Podcast in episode 163 in 2018. Alan has also written a column on branding for Forbes for 20 years. Alan is now co-founder and managing partner of MetaForce, a consultancy which takes a disruptive, multidisciplinary approach to marketing challenges. He's also an adjunct professor at the Berkeley Center for Entrepreneurship at NYU Stern School of Business, where he earned his MBA. And interesting fact, he originally wanted to be a filmmaker. Alan, congratulations on seeing the how, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thanks for inviting me back, and thanks for that long intro. And if I say very little after that, it's all downhill, I think. (laughs) After that intro. Yeah,
1: that's right. Thanks, folks. Uh, we'll see you next week. Um, no, I could have I could have said more, but I, I cut it down just because I knew that you were going to start to get embarrassed. But uh, I, I do note that you, with interest that you worked at Unilever. And in 1988, after I'd gotten out of the Army and started my first civilian job in, in New York City, I was the assistant account executive on the Unilever account over at J. Walter Thompson. And I was working on the launch of Lever 2000 deodorant soap. <laughs> I believe I remember that was it. Well, yeah, yeah that I wasn't was, long uh, after you had left Unilever. right? Yeah,
0: we were we were working on that uh, well before it launched. You know, as you know, innovation has speeded up, and so for them to be launching that, they probably were we were playing with it for the previous five years at least.
1: Right, and in fact, when I started, they were still in test market in like three markets, and exactly. only later did it roll out. And yeah, so we used to walk from uh, our offices uh, down closer to. Grand Central, I guess, and then we'd walk over to Lever House. It was a really easy uh, <laughs> client
0: visit. Yeah, it was the best office I ever had at Lever House because I had a. When I was young, I had an office on Park Avenue, looking out, and um, ever since then there've been views, but never as striking as that view yeah. down Park Avenue towards Grand Central.
1: Right, right, and now you live on Park Avenue, right?
0: Yes, but that <laughs> without the same view yeah say. okay,
1: okay, okay, yeah, well, cool uh there's a certain uh you know circular uh, uh thing at work there, so it turns out we have a number of shared acquaintances from back in those days, not that they'll admit knowing me, but that's okay because I've got the dirt on all of them, so before we get to the book i we we must talk briefly about who you dedicated the book to, which is your dad. Uh, Joe Adamson, and I'm sorry, but you just, it's got me so moved. You're right. This book is essentially about the lenses through which we view the world, the lenses that determine how and why we see what we see, which in turn shape our beliefs, our thoughts, and our actions. There have been several lenses through which I have viewed the world over the course of my life, be it from a parental perspective, a career perspective, and even as a citizen of the world. More than any other, the lens that has helped me see more clearly how to live a positive, productive, and appreciative life is the one through my father's eyes. You write, with great love and gratitude, I dedicate this book to my father, Joe Adamson, who passed away in 2022 at the age of 97 after an early life overcoming extraordinary challenges, quietly and humbly cherishing all that came after. He was not your average Joe. And then it says, go to the uh, acknowledgments at the end of the book for more on that. So of course, Adamson, I mean I immediately had to go there mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you write, you know, not just about your dad, but you start out with that. And I want to quote from uh, one small part at the beginning and then ask you to tell a little bit more about his story. You write. I would not be the man I am today, son, father, husband, and marketing professional, were it not for my father. Like other suburban dads, Joe Adamson taught my brother and me how to ride a bike, throw a baseball, play tennis, and drive a car. He showed us the right way to wash the car, wear a tie, and cut the grass. Growing up, other than his accent, I discerned very little difference between my dad and my friend's dads. So tell us uh, about the story of your dad. Yeah,
0: later in life, you know, as I said, the only thing I noticed was he spoke a little bit like, uh, if you remember what Henry Kissinger used to speak like, and that was it. I hope he didn't and, have as
1: thick an accent as Henry not Kissinger. Not
0: quite, but, you know, certainly, you, know, you knew he was not from, you know, Des Moines. So, <laughs> and so, later in life, he, he began to tell uh, my brother and I a story, but only when we asked, and he grew up in a very comfortable setting, ironically, like I did, where – you know, life was about, you know, cutting grass and riding bicycles, in his case, playing soccer. And uh, and his world came to an end when he was 10, because uh, he lived in Germany, and um, uh, he was not able to go to school anymore. And his uh, mother and his grandfather was able to, at 14... Well, his father... 14. Yeah.
1: His father passed his away. Father, yeah. And young. so, his mother was... Yeah. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. His mother was living with her father. Um, and... um and when all this happened, he was not able to go to school anymore and the situation with Hitler rising was, was becoming intolerable. They were lucky enough to get him on a boat by himself with a little suitcase well, hold on. to Let's, England.
1: Can we slow down for a second? Uh, yep. Knock happened in 1938 yep. and their home was destroyed. And her, uh,
0: yeah, vandalized by the neighbors. And so, they knew at that point he had and to get out. Grandfather,
1: was, his grandfather was killed.
0: Yes, that night, and he was a big attorney in town, and and so, but he was able to, before this happened, arrange for a single ticket for a 14-year-old boy uh, on a boat, uh, leaving Germany and going to England. He didn't speak, he learned, like most of us, had a couple years of English in school, which allows you to say, you know, what's for dessert, <laughs> but not much more, and um he ended up arriving in in England uh, near the uh, English Channel with a tiny bag and began to go to school there, learn English. There was you no, know, there was no, of course, cell phones. There was no connection with anyone left from his family. He was all alone there, and you know his life on a dime changed from the comfortable world he had grown up in to needing to start over again, completely over. And he was lucky enough to you know be with a family that cared about him he, uh, when he was 17 or something. He um, uh, left and got a small place to live in uh, England with a couple friends in London and then was lucky enough to get a job. This was one of my interesting, sorry, you know, building what was, called, I think it was a Lancaster bomber. He was a riveter inside the bomber and he, he did that for, because those were the jobs you could get because the Americans and the British were preparing uh, to uh, to defend themselves. And, um, and, and, fate would have it, he met some folks from the U.S. Army, and they recruited him as an interpreter to help them gather intelligence, read letters. And so, he went with the German Army, with the U.S. Army back into Germany, uh, traveling with them as they went town to town, doing intelligence work, you know, reading documents, and including interrogating prisoners to find out what they were doing. And he did that for, I guess, a year and a half, and it was such a great experience, and he was lucky enough to do that that he was able then, because he had been in the U.S. Army for a year and a half, or maybe more, able to get papers to come to the U.S. And he arrived in New York with a little bigger suitcase, but not much else. And it was at a time you could arrive in this country with a high school education and a little suitcase and start new. And so he was... Uh, started as uh, you know as a swept sweeping floors in a factory and it got then made you learned built on his riveting skills and did machine tools and and that company grew and he grew and so by the time i was born that whole world was you know didn't exist i you know he he would he would drive to his office like all the other suburban dads and come back in the evening and and we lived in you know a suburb of new york city and Yeah. So, when I began to learn this story, when I actually was putting together a family tree for his 95th birthday, you know, I knew parts of it, but it it was astonishing. And the piece that stuck with me was he always never talked about the past. He talked about, he was always optimistic. And it taught me the importance of, you know, life, you don't know what life's going to throw at you. You have to, you know, success is not about being able to do what you did comfortably yesterday. Success, I think, in business is about how you deal with adversity, how you deal with challenges. Every business is going to have a challenge. If everything runs smoothly, you know, and as steady as she goes, yeah, you know, that doesn't happen most of the time. And so, learning that you know, life's not a bowl of cherries all there's going to be some curveballs. And the issue is not if and when they're going to get curveballs, but how you react to them, how you respond to adversity, and how you build some grit and resilience to handle the tough times is what I learned.
1: Mm. Such a great story. And I should add, uh, he was also there when they liberated the Matthausen concentration camp with the the American military. It was so inspirational. I'm sorry. Uh, I bought extra audio tape this morning. I'm kidding. This is all digital. (laughs) But I just wanted a quote from uh, one section there. Were you right? It wasn't until I was older that I began to learn the detail of my dad's incredible journey. He didn't talk about his expulsion from his home, his lonely life in England, and most critically, his exposure to the atrocities of World War II and the Holocaust. What my dad witnessed and experienced shaped his view of life and became the lens through which he approached life and taught him lessons on how to live life fully, meaningfully, and joyfully. Joe Adamson taught me these lessons without speaking them aloud. Be resilient have grit, and have faith in your built-in navigation system to redirect when facing obstacles. These lessons continue to shape my worldview. As my dad told an interviewer shortly before his death, many people came out of that environment and collapsed completely. You only live once and must make the most of it. Yes, whatever happened is terrible, but you can't make it your way of life. And on the next page, you write, he was always optimistic. His business had good and bad times, but he always maintained an upbeat attitude. Despite everything he endured during all the traumas of his youth, he would visualize happier times and move forward. He found meaning and purpose day to day and truly seized every day he lived. So one of the reasons this just appealed to me on such an emotional level is I think your dad and my dad would have been friends. (laughs) My dad was born about the same time, 1921, and in World War II, he was a rifle company commander, an infantryman fighting in France and Germany. And I heard a few things about what he went through, but growing up, uh, he set a great example. You know, I I still miss him terribly, and I, I still can't believe how he was just able to press on afterwards. Your book is also real good, too, so uh, <laughs> I guess we should talk no, about it's, it's a tough story to follow. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's – it, it,
0: it, you know, It's about you know, every day you work in business, you should wake up and say, you know, go in with what is possible, not focusing on what happened yesterday.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's not that you got thrown off the horse. It's that you got back up. And I can say that because my wife is an, an equestrian, which is where all the money seems to go. <laughs> I would like to uh, read an excerpt before we talk about some of these lenses that you have from uh, page four. You write, when you walk into a marketing class, the whiteboard isn't filled with equations and there's a good reason for that. For the most part, marketing problems are not solved by putting all the market information into an algorithm, then taking the results and." executing them. Marketing is typically about connecting the analytical world to the constantly changing world we live in. This is rarely accomplished by simply adding up a column of of numbers. In my phenomenally enjoyable career in in the marketing world, ranging from brand management to advertising to branding to general marketing consulting, what I've loved most about it is the extent to which I have been challenged to bring non-linear thinking to a rational linear world. Marketing challenges don't have cut-and-dried answers that allow you to take processes and execute them without nuance. Understanding what data means and how it impacts human behavior, then adding a dash of creativity to that understanding to arrive at an idea or concept that speaks to something others have not yet noticed. This is the art that is marketing. And the art of marketing is now in a position to address itself to a whole new world, one where marketers drive the changes and transformations of tomorrow. Back in the days of yore, not that long ago, it was a marketer's job to understand to whom we should target our pitch, to know which segment of the market was right for whatever new thing we had to sell. Because, of course, while everyone wants to sell everything to everybody, success in marketing is about focusing and finding the most likely consumers for this better mousetrap, this product innovation, or that service innovation. But once you identify that core focus target audience, if you set about understanding How that audience feels and thinks about certain products or services of the kind you want to offer, you can introduce the new in a way that has the best shot of becoming people's preference, of becoming the new way they brush their teeth, wash their hair, diaper their babies, or clean their clothes. And then a couple pages later, you have a wonderful quote from Peter Drucker. And I was going to read this uh, with an Austrian accent. But since the uh, listener has already uh, heard enough from me, I got a real live Austrian to record this quote from Peter Drucker. It's not about selling. That's not what it is. It's about finding out. It's building a deep relationship with your customer, knowing what it is they want, need, and then figuring out how to give it to them. That, to me, is what marketing is, which is why marketing needs to take the reins in creating the business, not just selling what others make. That was uh, a marketing book podcast listener in Austria, good friend of mine, Rene Neubach. And uh, yes, in answer to the listener's unasked question, he's a very uh, good looking guy. I'll include a link to his uh, LinkedIn profile so you can all see him. And jumping all the way to the end of the book, I'm like page 211. You write that, I see myself as a way of cleaning your glasses, if you will. <laughs> Explain what you mean. Everyone looks at
0: the world through their own, from their own perspective, and you know part of it is just getting ready to see. I can tell you to look for opportunities here or here, but if you're not ready to see things, you could look through a telescope and not see the moon. You'll say, "Well, I, I don't really see anything up there." And so, part of it is to get your head uh, or your eyes ready to spot these opportunities. And there, there's so many things that that get in the way of you seeing these opportunities. It's not about getting an instruction, look over here, go around the corner, there's your next, you know, you'll find gold in that river. It's about making sure that if you go around the corner, you'll even notice it. And, you know, a bunch of tips in the book, we talked about this before, one of my favorite is, you know, to, to, you know, to see like a a (laughs) five-year-old who, you know, pick things up, look at it from, you know, you know, who can walk down the street, you go down with been a million times and then point something new out to you or like look at the airplane up there and there have been airplanes and you go yeah I I hadn't really I stopped looking at the airplanes I stopped looking at you know which car is blue which car is yellow and to some extent if you're in this zone where you think you know it all and you're on autopilot and your job is to you know to figure out how to get A to B as fast as possible it doesn't matter if somebody tells look at the great opportunity out there because you are so this is an old marketing term, myopic, you're so far in the bubble, and you you have such, you know, your, your, your brain is a spotlight, not a lantern. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what marketing advice you read, you won't see it even if somebody almost puts it right in front of your nose.
1: Yes. And marketing myopia is still uh, very, very important. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was interviewing uh, Philip Kotler, father of modern marketing, 92 years old. And we talked about Theodore Levitt's article in the Harvard Business Review from 1960. It's still relevant. It's unbelievably relevant. Even more now. (laughs) Yeah, most people
0: still see themselves if they're in the railroad business and not in the transportation business.
1: Yes, just amazing. And
0: almost every category you look at, a piece of that still exists. But, you know, to some extent, the principles are still there. It's just being able to see it and Mm -hmm. seize it.
1: Who was it that? Uh, refers to that as the beginner's mind. I can't remember. It was toward the end of the book.
0: Yeah, I, 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 your okay. memories. Mine. But, you know, th- that's the notion that because it, it happens. Another thing that happens you know, when I would go into a successful company and um, whether it was a beer company, insurance company, whatever uh, client we had at the time. And I'd be in a room and there were 10 people, 8 people who've all spent 10 years, 15 years in the insurance business, in the uh, soap business. and They were really experts at that business, but they had learned it so well. You'd say, "Well, what about doing this?" Go, no, this is the way people buy beer. This is the way people shop for soap, and they're so hardwired um, that even if you present an opportunity, yeah, no, I don't buy it. They, 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 are so you know, they know the answer. And so part of success here is also not making sure you don't do that, but also surround yourself with people that. That don't have that. One of the f- more interesting programs uh, I s- found out about uh, when I was researching actually my last book for HBO was that they would, you know, rather than bring interns in from colleges to work for the lowest ranking people crunching numbers in a cubicle, which was the way interns were used, they had the CEO and the leadership team each get an intern to make sure the leadership of the company hits fresh eyes and, <laughs> and uh, who could talk to them. This is what's happening in entertainment. And you're, you're worried about, in, in other words, so it was reverse mentorship. Yes. It was uh, interns. Not. Yes. He, of course he learned a ton from being in a C-suite, but also keeping the C-suite relevant that they, see what was going on because they were in meetings morning to night talking to shareholders. You know, they, they were not hanging out at bars downtown or traveling to
1: obscure places. Yes. And uh, you mentioned in the book that your kids, that, that you still rely on them to keep you up to speed on what's uh, what's going on. And if I could get my kids to return my calls or answer my texts, I'd, I'd probably be in the same situation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they're mostly, you know, fashionistas saying, Dad, if you wear that, you know, shirt again. You know, I'm not going to go out for dinner with you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, so in other words, they, they, can, they can see yourself becoming your father's old <laughs> Right,
1: right. Yeah. Oh, my poor children. Of course, I lean into it. Yeah. So, I want to ask you, before we jump into some of these uh, lenses, to explain the following from page nine. We live in a time where it is experiences and not things. That drive us and motivate us to buy, participate, and talk about something.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it gets back to where you started the story that you know you worked on Lever Two Thousand, and I was a—it was wasn't called a brand manager. I was called a product manager. My mm-hmm. whole life was about whatever product we were, and figuring out how to get people to buy that product. And you end up in a very, you know, tactical approach, and you know, part of success is realizing how that product the most important part, fits into someone's lives, um, not just do they like it or do they not like the product or do they want it tasting better or not. And so part of the opportunity is to zoom out.
1: Yes. Well, you know, it seems like a, uh, a hangover from the days of yore, maybe even before our time, where demand outstrips supply. So the manufacturers could simply say, well, here it is. Here's, here's the product. Uh go get it. And then, you know, later of course the distributors, uh, the the channels were had a little more control and now the the consumer has control. So the point is it's all about the product and doggone it, just like marketing myopia, it still seems to be the biggest thing. You know, they're all focused on themselves. And you have to you know, see how they're it fits in
0: their life. And they, and they won't tell you. You have to observe them exactly. better. You have to you have to stop asking and start watching them. Mm-hmm. to see what they're really
1: doing. Yes. Alan, one other thing I want to get out of the way before we jump into some of these lenses has to do with vocabulary. Um, I guess about a year ago, I interviewed James Gilmore about the updated edition of The Experience Economy that he wrote with Joseph Pine. Uh, explain why it's important to make a distinction between The Experience Economy, which we both agree is a phenomenal book and, and idea, and what you're calling experience innovation. Well, you know,
0: getting back to where I left off, you know, so you zoom out out of the product and see how it fits into someone's life. And today, no one, no one, the most important marketing tool is word of mouth, but no one shares, I brush my teeth and the left side of my mouth is cleaner than my right side. You know, so they, they share things they experience, but that doesn't mean, you know, it's, I went to a restaurant and there was a singing waiter. You know, maybe sometimes that, I'm not talking about making the experience fun. I'm talking about, often making the experience the thing you remember and want to talk about, but it's related to the product or how it's sold. So to some extent, or initially it was the experience economy was more about making everything more entertaining. And I was taking down a click and say, look through the journey, and you don't have to you don't have to make a big change in experience, but you can make small. I'll give an example. Years ago I was working with Delta and you know, they started to install, as everyone now knows, big screens at the gate, you know, big uh, TV screens. And it used to be, if you're, you know,
1: if you were it's at before a gate, we had you, smartphones for the younger people, yeah but, yeah, but even
0: yeah, and it used to be that if you had, there was a question, you had to line up and wait for that gate agent to answer your question. And you know, if somebody said, "What's wrong with the airline?" The people would say, "Well, the, the line is too long at the gate. Sometimes I have a question, or the gate person was not." There when I, But they wouldn't suggest, why do you have to talk to the gate? And so back then, Delta started to put information on which seat you had and your flight clearance. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, they were creating an experience that was better in a small way. And you would more likely get people to say I had a great experience because when there was a delay, it was instantly shown this flight's delayed and please go to gate six because we're rerouting all the passenger instead of getting into that frenzy. So and experience innovation is more about, to some extent, sometimes taking friction out, sometimes making what is traditionally done more enjoyable. But it's not just about looking to only deliver the wow experience that people talk about. Uh, and so that's the the nuance and ties to the you know the question earlier which is if you don't zoom out and see how your service or product fits into someone's life you're not going to you're going to be talking about myopically the product and you're not going to be understanding other ways to make your service as part of a bigger journey or product make their personal experience better and if they don't have a better personal experience, you are not going to, it's hardwired to social media. Uh, Very few people just talk about a better mousetrap. And over time, if you continue to do that, people will share, I had a great experience. Now, airlines are all about experience. But for any product, returning a product, you know, reading the instructions, whatever point of experience you want to look at, they all matter. And you don't have to go all the way to doing something that's never been done You can just observe friction and points around your product or service that will make it a little better every day and you're going to get noticed more and you're going to get people talking about it more on social media because word of mouth matters.
1: Yes, the book is full of leverage points like things that you you don't have to boil the ocean as they say or reinvent the wheel. You can do little things that are much more impactful for your customers than you realize. Let's talk about something important. Alan, I want to talk about something that is one of the lenses, but it's also throughout the book and is one of the biggest challenges I see for companies. And I want to quote from page 213. By understanding how consumers think and feel, you can build a deeper empathy that understands not just what they need, but why they need it. Few things in marketing are more challenging than understanding a consumer's wants, needs, or desires. And in a marketplace that is increasingly transformed by the forces of globalization, technology, and social and cultural revolutions, not to mention the world events of 2020 and beyond, this has become even more challenging. If you think all you have to do is ask a consumer what they want, Think again. Can
0: you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you
1: dig it? So, on page 18, you exhort readers to move out from behind your desk and that myopia is not an option. What is keeping businesses from understanding their customers better?
0: You know, first is going all the way back to what we talked about. They think they know them. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> when we launched the product, we did interviews, we asked people if they liked the taste of the pizza, and they said they did, and they wanted more tomato. You know, so it, it, a piece of it is they felt like they they already know that. A second piece is they get busy with lots of stuff because business is complicated. And if you're not considered and pushing, you could spend all your day, I often did, in a conference room, in meetings, looking at screens, reading emails, you know,
1: Fighting fires.
0: Yeah. And you may, you may, or, or dealing with you know, an employee that's uh, struggling and coaching them, and, and, or dealing with a client that didn't like the last thing that well. And so, you know, everyone talks about, oh, I'm very close to them. We're a consumer centric company. You know, <laughs> we're, right. and maybe they read the executive summary of a research report <laughs> that was done six months ago. But, you know, the world has changed. So I, I'm a believer that there's no substitute for. It's not, the, it's not the answer, but you you have to do all that. You have to read research, but find people who can help you be more provocative in research and people perhaps who are really good at visual observation. Because as you said, if I don't really understand why you take a left at the corner versus a right and you tell me because I like right-hand turns, people give you simple answers that make them sound like rational, and but their behavior, everyone knows, is driven by emotion concerns fears mm-hmm. and they'll never share that with you And so, you've got to find a way to find you know to do uh, without getting too into star trek <laughs> a vulcan mind melt with your customers <laughs> to get inside their head because now you're you know, getting help them yeah now you know you have to and it's not easy to do but it has to be everyone's job at the company, but marketing especially. Yes. And it reminds me of a story I wasn't going to share, but my father-in-law was in the in the shopping mall business, a tougher business to be in today than when he was in it. And when he was younger, we he said, go to the malls with me and you know, and walk the malls, and he loved just walking through the malls and looking at how people were, what was happening at the food court, what's going on here. And, you know, successful people in businesses never lose that kid in the candy shop type of feel. And so, Mm -hmm. if you're inside, if you're not interested in doing that, you know, and it's not that hard to do, you don't have to, you know, go into a store and say, you know, Excuse me, can you tell me why you picked up that <laughs> wrench versus this wrench? But, you know, find ways to observe people and see the context of where and how they're using your brand. I, I had a recent experience on that. I, we had a, a washing machine break, which is, you know, um, doesn't happen that often anymore. And I had to go try to buy a new washing machine with my wife and found out that um, – that you go into a store and there are lots of good brands, but it was more of a sea of similarity. They were all, you know, nice, white, had nice controls. And, you know, it was really, and they have several brands that had good quality, but it wasn't like buying a computer where you have a clear sense that maybe Apple is easier to use or not, or other categories, they were all very good, but how do you tell the difference? And of course the salesperson, not that credible, because to some extent she would push whatever, you didn't have that same level of confidence. Mm And a friend of mine says, well, you know, why don't you um, go to Consumer Reports, which is something I've used before. And my wife said, Alan, what would you find out for Consumer Reports? And I I looked through it, and I tried to explain to her, you know, well, this one has three full balls. This is a half ball on reliability. This one scores that well on ease of use. And I realized that all the facts were there. (laughs) But, you know, I couldn't explain you know, and even the, I didn't have a clear sense. Do I want something that lasts longer but was easier to repair? Do I want something that was quieter but cleaned better? You know, you know. And so uh, it was an internal observation. But in my dialogue with my wife, I realized I couldn't explain. <laughs> you know, it was too complicated. But that's the way it was done until somebody smartly invented something called wire cutter a couple years back for technology, oh, yeah. and they don't tell you. You know, they said you know if they're reviewing headphones, and the New York Times smartly bought it, so you have some credibility for those who believe the New York Times is credible.
1: Is not Wirecutter uh, owned by the New York Times?
0: Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It's just reason. But so all of a sudden, when you're looking for what's the best headphone to buy, it doesn't give you 15 attributes for fi- if you're running and want comfort. This is a headphone. If you're a runner and want great sound, this is a headphone. If you want a headphone for your phone to have great, and, and so they, if you were listening to music and you want great sound, and so and, and just click here. So they went to the solution, and you know I'm sure it's you know I don't have to I haven't checked how their business is doing versus consumer, but it was for years people would say. You know, how do you find company when you're buying a car? You can go to Consumer Reports. That was the only game in town. So somebody looked at the category and said, hmm, and probably had an experience like I did with trying to figure out which one to buy and then tell a story. Say, this is the best one because we want one that's, you know, 60 percent longer lasting, 30 percent less maintenance, 20 percent <laughs> better cleaning and 4 percent nicer design. You know, it, it, while all those are important, they didn't cut to the chase in today's world. And help you get there. So part of it is, you wouldn't have done that if you were reading a market research report. Yes. And say, you know, how do you, because people would have said, well, that was very helpful, or I looked at reviews, or, you know, because they don't, they can't help you see around the corner. They can't, they don't know what's better. So often we do research, you know, research is like a rearview mirror. You know, they can tell you what's been the case, what has been, but they can't help you. Of course, Steve Jobs famously talked about this. See around the corner. So to help in research, no matter how little you do, it's better to go in with three ideas. We're thinking of doing something new with our service here. Here's three. We could do this. Or we could do this. And even if it's not realistic, we tell me, what do you think? And they go, oh, those are terrible ideas. But what you really should do is this. But if you ask them without that stimulus, without something to disrupt their thinking, you know, to tell you –
1: Like saying, what, what do you want? What do you yeah, want? No one ever asked for an iPhone.
0: Exactly. So part of it is um, when you're doing research, you, it, it's not easy. It takes time. And the more time you spent observing with fresh eyes, or trying research that has some stimulus or some something provocative, even the—I think I told the story in a book—we were doing research for a pizza chain, and the research was, you know, how, how well do you like the t- pizza? And, oh, oh yeah, I yeah. like it. And, I like it. And you know, they were very confident, and
1: they're very polite, and, telling the very, very and, they thought yeah, they wanted yeah, to yeah, hear
0: right, and you know, the restaurant's okay, and. Uh, how often do you go there? We go there as a family twice a week, you know, once a week, and the service is always friendly and the pizza is hot. And, and, and then one of the smarter moderators uh, back in those days, she said in a group, one more question. You all seem to like this chain and uh, no issues. And everyone's yeah, we like it. So if I told you, this is a stimulus, if I told you they went out of business and are going out of business, what would you do? And to a person, everyone said, oh, we just go to Papa John's. <laughs> there was no you – know, They wouldn't blink. <laughs> they wouldn't blink. And so if they hadn't asked that simple question, you would have left that room after an hour thinking, we're good. We're the pe- awesome. The people like the, people like the pizza. Yeah. You know, they like coming to a restaurant. They like the box. They- and if she hadn't asked that simple question, and of course when that question – you know, that, that basically – Delete the last hour, because if there's no reason you wouldn't go across the street, <laughs> you really don't have a brand that's compelling, <laughs> right. even though they fairly like you. and so so part of it is getting people out of your category to help ask questions. Part of it is just don't go into research uh, without something to get people thinking beyond a rear view mirror,
1: yes. And uh, let me just quote one other thing from the end of the book where you write, one of the biggest barriers to success is getting closer to the customer. Everyone believes they are customer-centric, and most will find a way to say as much <laughs> in their pitch, on their website, and any discussion of what they do. and how they do it. What they don't realize, however, is the extent to which customer centricity is a concept most don't fully understand. Which brings me to a story that was uh, not in the book, but I remember years ago, and I can't remember which book it is, so I apologize to that author. But it had to do with understanding your customers, and we talked about how this one exercise was: you you go in uh, to uh, a, a room you know, you talk to your... Let me let me back up. The reason why uh, I want to mention this is because a listener did this, and she got promoted for doing it. And she was trying to convince her company they needed to learn more about their customers. And they were... The, the, the company was saying, we already know about the customers. We know everything we need to know, which I hear a lot and you've already touched on. So what she did is this exercise where you... Uh, had She had everybody there, the key people, and on one piece of paper, they wrote down everything they knew about their favorite character from, let's say, um, a movie or a, maybe a TV show, like like in the United States, maybe The Office, everything you know about Dwight Schrute or whoever they wanted to pick. And they had a lot of fun. They wrote quite a bit about it. And then she said, okay, great. Everybody had fun. She goes, now turn it over. Now write down everything you know about our customer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... The point was made, and she, uh, they said, Men, all right,
0: twenty four to forty eight, <laughs> you know, lives in a B county, you know, works in a, in they a, were in busted, a, yeah,
1: right. and so then they said, all right, all right, go ahead and do that initiative you want to help us better understand our customers, and then of course they they got all kinds of things, so. Yeah, but even if, as you said, even if you're
0: watching them and figuring out what's driving them is still, you still need to, everyone says, oh, we know our customer. But do you really have, a, you know, the classic marketing, an insight, something that they, yes. that they that, that is their GPS system uh-huh. that tells them to reach for your coffee versus somebody else's or fly your plane. Ver- you know, and you know, once you have that, you've got, oh. you know, the navigation. But everyone thinks they understand the customer. But they understand on the outside and their behavior, but you still need to figure out what's driving that behavior. And, you know, that hasn't changed. It's become harder to do because the other thing with consumer research, as you know, is we used to do it in the good old days. You know, once every six months, once every four months, once every year. The focus uh, groups? yeah any type of research yeah you know. right. and, and and but you know now as you know since the world is the, the pace of change is accelerating just because you knew your customer in november doesn't mean they're behaving the same way in october mm-hmm. especially if a pandemic has happened or or you know or some other you know variables change so it just because you it's you just need to realize that you are trying to, you know, maybe their insights are not changing, but you are trying to keep up with a chase, a moving target. And so, the minute you say you know your customer, you have to have a little bit of the Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. Yes. You have to believe that you knew your customer yesterday, and they may be the same tomorrow, but it's unlikely they're going to be the same three weeks from now, because they may have read something online, a bad review. Somebody says, why are you buying this thing? An environmental issue. There's so many things that could happen.
1: Some kind of social media disaster. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And they won't call you up and say, you know, Alan, I said I like the pizza uh, last week, but you know, uh, I just saw something online about how people – so you you have to look at it as a marathon, not a sprint, (laughs) and you have to get in the habit of walking the mall. (laughs) <laughs> if that's your business more frequently than you used to.
1: Yeah. Well, lens number one is focus in and drill down. And we've talked about some of these already. You know, we've we, we talk, you talked about how um you know there's everybody has some version of too busy syndrome, which you touched right. on, and everyone's experience is a curated view crafted on our own behalf uh, unbeknownst to us, people don't realize that. what anything else about the the focus in and drill down that uh, we haven't covered?
0: The main point of that is you look at a category and think everything's hunky- dory, you know, and static, static. And to succeed today, you know, I go back to the experiencing, people don't share ordinary. No one shares I had an okay experience. I went on a plane, they flew to LA. They got there on time.
1: Well, I, I would share that if they just got me there, I would be thrilled.
0: Yeah, but you know, the people share that pilot got lost and landed in Chicago or something. But you know, but so so no one's going to share. So you have to to succeed in marketing today, which is a broad point. You have to be brilliant. At, you have to execute extremely well at a few things because it's better to do one thing great than five things averagely. And yes. another, another thing which go on is people have a check the box mentality. And we're doing a little bit of social, we have an influencer thing going on. We did some advertising, we're doing some PR and they're all very nice, but they're completely generic, average, and in a world that's average, no one shares. Yeah. Uh, so to, to succeed, you have to look at each category and say, is there an opportunity to focus in a drill now. The famous one earlier was used to get contacts at uh, at an optical store, and then one eight hundred years ago, one eight hundred con- contacts came in. More contacts delivered right to you, faster, better prices. So they executed not on everything in the in the optical space, but on contacts and particularly disposable ones that were growing at that time. Mm-hmm. But even even today, I know you're you're a pet owner. You know people. We're, you know, if you ask them how happy you are with your, you know, the pet food you're getting, people say, okay, oh, yeah, fine, I go to the store, I get to the supermarket, I buy, you know, uh, until somebody came around and said, gee, if we really could be much more focused and execute better would there be an opportunity and i think chewy did that you know to something because they you know they knew when you were running out you got an email saying you should be low on this you know and yep. bingo was at your door they, they knew your pet's birthday they would send you a note mm-hmm. ironically i wasn't going to tell this story either when, when uh, our family dog passed away last year Zoe. they yeah they sent flowers to the house really and so that's oh. a perfect example so uh, not only, you know, did they say, I'm sorry to see you go, we're losing a customer. If you ever get another dog, you know, please use this coupon, uh, which is a traditional expected. All of a sudden, a bouquet of flowers arrived with a handwritten note. And, you know, that little, you know, that's a little bit more of an, but that looks at their business and say, what business are we in? Are we in the people order online, deliver it, get there in two days? Yeah. But if the experience is defined, we want to be your partner in your Care of your pet, how would you redo that? And they did that often. They would include another treat in the box, or, or if the dog didn't like the food, you know, I'd call the mom and say, Look, I'm sorry, we ordered, you know, <laughs> too much supply, but all of a sudden our dog, they said, You know, give it to your neighbors. We'll send you the right stuff. Yeah. And so you can't ask a customer, What you expect in somebody selling you pet food online? Because they'd say, Good selection, good price, fast delivery. <laughs> But, you know, the fact that Chewy sent
1: flowers. And now we're talking about it.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> and so that's the the piece of it that's hard to do because – and I'm sure, you know, they didn't find that out by asking customers what would make the Chewy experience better. I'm sure somebody there or another firm had the idea, what happens when somebody's pet passes away, you sent flowers? They would show that idea. Maybe they did smart research. And they go, Wow. That would I'd remember you and we got another pet, I would you know, that would make a difference. Definitely. But if you ask so so part of that that's tied to the if you show somebody that idea, they'll say, Wow. But if you ask them what you should get, they'd say a simple, a simple on-time delivery, good price.
1: Let's jump to a couple of these others before we wrap up. Lens number two is customize and make it personal. And you write, if you customize your product or experience, you will build a crazy glue type relationship between you and your customers. And then you also write that control is personalization. Talk about why this customization and control is so much more powerful than I think a lot of people realize.
0: Well, everyone's talked about for years that you can now be one-on-one, you know more about your customer. And everyone is up to their eyeballs and data, you know, back to the research. You know, here, look at all this data. I said, why is Doug buying? What is he buying? But unless you figure out how to unlock that, and do something personal it doesn't it doesn't really work i you know, we were talking uh before the show about uh how you know to some extent life has changed and it used to be that if i wanted to do a sales meeting i had to get on a plane and go talk to somebody and you know that's still very true but a whole bunch of companies have sprung up with this idea of how can i tailor or customize in a category and one of them is is uh, you know Vidyard, which is a, a way for people to do quick little videos. And so when they're recruiting customers, they don't send you a mass email saying, Al, you know, here's, our, here's how you can send a quick video to your prospect. They do send out a video and say, hi, Alan, I'm Kyle from Vidyard. And I've made this video because I think you guys should be using it. And I've tried, I've done this video. Here's how you could use a video to tell your story. And all of a sudden I get a video from someone saying to my name, who's done the research on my business, and showed me a 30-second demo of how a video could work, and it's something I'd never done before. And and so, you know, customizing is, yes, addressing people. It used to be addressing people by name. You get something and say, you know, Doug, you know, we understand you like dogs, and here's... But you have to... Usually, it's dear first name. Exactly. dear. Usually it's dear resident, dear, right. dear apartment owner. But, you know, so we've had the ability to personalize, you know, before, but now you have to think about that because if you could really tailor it to the person.
1: Yeah, you talk in the oh, book I, about how uh, there's like hotels that are personalizing things for a guest and it's things they're going to do anyway, but they're giving them right. control. Talk about that. Right.
0: I mean, I mean, so lots of the hotel chains, or it used to be you you get to a hotel and- All the rooms are the same and all the issues about that issue going on. But all of a sudden, they're experimenting with, you show up at a hotel, you walk in a room, they already know that you like these pillows from previous days. They already know that when you come in, instead of you're a news junkie, when you come in the room hearing music on the TV about the resort, you know, they put on a news channel when you get in there. So you don't have to even figure out how to work the remote, which could require... A, a video tutorial. <laughs> Normally, yeah. <laughs> they know that, you know, you you typically eat breakfast in the room because you're running to a meeting and you get an email saying, would you like you to use a little breakfast of scrambled eggs, coffee, delivered to your room at 6.30? You don't think, oh yeah, bingo. So in other words, you have, the, so these bigger companies, Marriott is one of them, you, you have all this data figuring out how to use it so when you come to the room, you feel more like home mm-hmm. because... Somebody thought of it. So, but think, you know, sometimes you know, just having the the, the towels in the right place, to, you know, doesn't. You still have to think about what are the things of personalization that would that would matter.
1: And it seems like a lot of them. It's not that hard to personalize certain things. And I'll, I, one example that came to mind for me that I'd heard in the past was the Navy. They have a big hospital in Bethesda. The Bethesda Naval Hospital. It's where they take care of the U.S. presidents and so forth. And they have a burn center there for sailors who've been severely burned. And when when an accident like that happens, they are really rendered almost completely helpless. Um, you know, they're happy to be alive, but it's, it's awful. And when they first arrive at this burn center, they say to the sailor, would you like a blue room or a green room? And they have... Blue rooms and green rooms. But they ask, just asking that one question, it gives the sailor a sense of agency. And it's the first time they felt like they've, they're in control of things ever right. since the accident. Yep. And, you
0: know, every category is open to that. And you don't need big data to do it. You can just imagine if you pick the example. And because people treasure things that are made for them. More than things that are mass, mm-hmm. everyone wants. It's just harder to do in certain categories, but but you can do a little bit. It's happening in shampoo. Online companies, or if you if you have certain hair type, you they'll customize a formula to you know. So it's happening on a small scale. But I think realizing that one area to create an experience that is. Going to be stickier, as I say, with less, and you and you can't necessarily do it the way we used to, which is this product works better and demo it, you know, because it's better for you. Is to really experiment as to how, and it doesn't have to be a big thing. As I said, you know, I mean, you know, the news channel, you know, you know, no one would pick a a hotel based on them having you know news channel playing versus music in the pictures by the pool, but if you find enough of those small things. All of a sudden, you're going to get at the insight, and the consumer insight I me. Mean, I stay at hotels where I feel at home. I'm making that up, but that's likely close to an insight or where they know me or I'm comfortable. And all of a sudden, if there are five things in the room, uh, from what type of charger you need to a cable for your uh, computer or you know how to use your monitor. Or well, what a, you
1: want in the minibar.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's not, you know, there's only, yeah, a perfect example. That's actually one they're working on. And so instead of having 20 items that you would never eat, all of a sudden they know that, you know, it it has Budweiser and you're a Budweiser drinker and it has, you know, these types of chips and you eat the, all of a sudden, you know, and you're not going to say anything, but inside the inside it will get at is, oh, it feels like home. Yeah, I feel listened to. Yeah, I listen to – and if you ask somebody, why did you choose this hotel, they'll never say because they had my favorite beer in the – because it's so silly. I like Uh, them. Yeah. uh, Or I feel like home. So, they'll never say that. But if you look at the experience that way, how can you customize a tailor? It's important.
1: Yeah. Gosh, it brings to mind uh, (laughs) when the kids were little and you needed to get them up and get them to get dressed for school and you put out two outfits. I didn't care which one. She picked, <laughs> just pick one. But she, you know, there was no fight. Uh, it's, it's what she wanted. Right. Instead of it. saying
0: where where this today, and the same thing. Can you tailor it for the audience? Um, and I think marketers are used to doing. It's more efficient this way. And yeah, it, yeah, it would be more efficient for everyone to drive a black Model T
1: Ford. Yeah. <laughs> thank you henry Ford. yeah oh there 's so many of these there 's eight of them we don 't have time to go into all of them. but Let me ask you about one that I just thought was so interesting and probably misunderstood and that 's the concierge. See like a concierge and you 're right concierges do more than make dinner reservations, and I thought that was brilliant because that 's kind of what everybody what i what I thought of as a concierge. It was the first thing that came into my mind hotel concierge. Tell us about your covid nineteen lockdown experiences with Chubby's Hardware Store and what that has to do with being able to see like a concierge.
0: Yeah, let's just frame it a little bit more because, as you said, you know, people think they're delivering good customer service if they do what you ask for, right? So, in a hotel, if you say, I need a dinner reservation, and the person, you know, looks on the computer and says, Well, Open Table has these three restaurants, which do you want? He or she is solving the problem. So, yeah, all right, fine, you do that. But if you're lucky enough to go to a a nicer hotel once in a while and you get to an experienced concierge who's just not googling for you which you could do on your phone (laughs) you know they'll look at you and say alan you look really stressed so you probably don't want to walk far here's three places right here ask for bill at this place he will seat you up front it's quieter on the menu i recommend you you know and all of a sudden you he's solving a problem you haven't asked them Mm -hmm. and that's what a you know, that's what customer service is great service is about. So, if you ask people how satisfied you were with an experience, you're going to say, back to the pizza, oh, tastes okay. <laughs> um, but if you're trying to see like a concierge, you're trying to solve. So, during COVID, like many people, I had more time at home <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I didn't have a commute. And I, you know, and, but, you know, of course, when you're spending more time at home, you you know, there's always a complete list of 400 things that you could do that need repair, but, you know, you, you, you try to, you know, work your way down the list. So you, you end up doing more home repairs and simple things. And, you know, I realized that, you know, I needed – I tried to do things that uh, I ordinarily wouldn't have time to do or tackled. And I would, you know, go on Home Depot and buy the product (laughs) and it would arrive. And I was, oh, my God, you know, this doesn't look like the same thing. I can't fit this. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then I went to my local Ace hardware store. And before, I would send them a picture. Say, "Here's the here's the faucet, here's the leak, here's this." And then when I arrived, they'd have a say, well, Alan. You really need this, and so. But when you screw this, make sure you don't tighten it too much because you could break it, which of course would happen to me. A, and so they were not just selling me a product. I asked for. I was able to share with the owner of this hardware store the problem, and he was a cons- a repair consultant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not only did he sell me the. The piece, but the tools, perhaps, but more importantly, he gave me a little advice on how to do it, which all of a sudden made the task easier. So while anyone could have sold me the the piece that was broken, and everyone headed for less, having a a local, um, in this case, you know, we did it over FaceTime. Uh, because, you know, I wasn't hanging out in the store. But having that sort of, you know, and he would have the package available on the table outside the store, so I didn't have to go in the store. I'd come there, pick up my packet. I had already, you know, had the you know, instructional video. And in that little packet was not only the part, but the right screwdriver that fit that part, the right screws that fit that. And reminder that said, to, you know, don't tighten it to the right, tighten it to the left. And it reminded me of, you know, when I go to a concierge, You know, if I ask them for a dinner reservation, and they just give me a dinner reservation, I'm not upset enough to complain about it, but I'm not excited enough to tell anybody about it.
1: And what happened when you lost your credit card? Tell that.
0: Yeah. So the other piece was, uh, you know, I I I went to charge something on a a, a Monday in New York, and I said, "Where's my credit card?" And of course, like everyone else, you go through. No, what was I doing? Which normally you say
1: after a night of clubbing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I I went and I um. I said, well, on Sunday, I went to the hardware store, and then I went to, I don't remember, maybe a gas station and a restaurant. So, I called the restaurant. It wasn't there. I called the hardware store, and he said, no, we, we don't have it. But if we do, we'll let you know. And then he said, you know, where else did you go? I said, well, I went to the gas station down the road. And he said, well, here's a number. Call them. I couldn't, you know, and, you know, hopefully that helps. And I called, no one answered the phone. And I called him back and said, you know, is there another number? Because no one's answering that phone. He goes, you know, they're terrible at answering the phone. You know, I'm going to walk down the street. I'll get your credit card if it's there. And I'll leave it, I'll hold it at the store. So when you come back next, you know, the next time, you'll know. And of course, he went down the street, found my credit card. They never answered the phone at the gas station. And when I went in to see him, he had my credit card in an envelope at the front desk. But I would never have thinking, I would never have asked him. To, hey, can you do me a favor? I You know, no one's picking up the phone. Can you walk down the street and see if it's there? I would never have asked that question. I don't think anyone would have. But once he did that, in addition, of course, to helping me learn a little bit about how to put an electric socket in, not that I want to do that again, but it reminded me that customer service is changing. And if if you just ask people, how well did you do? And you give them exactly what they expect. Again, no one shares average. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to solve, the, zoom out. And what problem is Alan trying to fix by buying this part? And does he know that red is hot and black is, you know, And and say, well, if I really want to help him put this in, short of doing it, I better tell him not to have the red wire touch the black wire.
1: Yeah, it's not like we don't want to see Alan again, but we want him to come in for for different projects. And exactly. in that chapter, you write about how Apple's Genius Bar exemplifies the spirit of concierge service. And in a story I had, it immediately popped into my head years ago. I had a, an iPhone, and it it, I, uh, it had a little crack on it, and it just seemed like it was I was always having to uh, recharge it. So I went into the store. And I said, yeah, I'd like, the, you know, what brought you here? And I said, well, I think I want to get a new uh, iPhone. And they said, okay, yeah, sure, we can sell you a new iPhone. What's, um, wh- what phone do you have and uh, what, is there a problem with that one? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's, it's got this crack here and it's the, the, the battery doesn't work very well. And they said, oh, okay. Well, where it's cracked is not anywhere where you can see anything. But they said, also, we, can, would it be okay if we just test your battery? And they tested the battery and said, you know, your battery is really quite good, but if you would just turn off all these background app refresh things and a couple other things, we're happy to sell you one, but you don't really need one yet. (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
0: I mean, I don't want to go on an Apple rent, but you know, I—that's how I think. Ultimately, people talk about how you know, sharp the image is on the phone, or this or that. Uh, and you try to buy this stuff; it looks the same across. But you know, I recently—I uh, have an old computer I use just uh, for email and internet, and, uh, and maybe Zoom. And it's you know, old old computer is probably seven eight years, but it still works fine. And all of a sudden, I had trouble with it, and I called up. You know Apple Care, and they said, you know, give me the serial number, and they go, well, you know, Al, Al, that's just an eight-year-old computer; it's three years out of warranty. What's your problem? And then that rep spent forty minutes on the phone rebuilding my software with me, even though it was out of warranty, and telling me how to do things and screen sharing, and and got it working again on a product that I bought eight years ago. And yes, that was my expectation because I had spent money with them on an iPhone, and then I bought it. You know, but you know the, the traditional. Approach would have been, I'm sorry, Mr. Adamson is out of warranty. If you want to visit us at the store, we'll be happy to send you sell you a new one. And I would never share that story, but you know, now you, you know, they got me to share another story: is that maybe it's not for every Apple customer calling up with a, something out of warranty, but you know, most of us, because Apple is such a valuable company, billion dollar company, have more than one Apple thing in the house, and so most of us probably feel that I have a relationship with that company. I, I want them to tailor or customize or act like a concierge.
1: Absolutely. So let me just mention a couple of the others before we wrap up. One of them is joining forces where you, you you partner with other companies. And I just thought that was amazing. And more companies should be doing that. But you have to know what you really do well and go the rental route. I would forgotten about the rental route. And of course, a lot, a lot of companies are realizing that their customers don't really want to buy that what is it? A log splitter, or <laughs> or that beautiful dress uh, for that one particular wedding? You don't want to have to own it, and so there's all kinds of examples of how a lot of companies are saying, "Well, why don't we rent?" Which also kind of leads into some other books that have been on the show about, you know, the membership economy, the subscription marketing, all that type of thing, and and how the the tide is turning against the trend of ownership. And one other one was about being a broker, uh, where you talk about how like you know, Airbnb and Uber are where you are not actually owning anything, but you're bringing value to two different groups. Very interesting. Actually, let me ask you one question about that. Airbnb and Uber, they're great examples. Are there other, what are some other maybe not as well-known examples of companies where they are putting together buyers and sellers for the benefit of all?
0: You know, they're, they're, lots of them you know the one that no one ever talks about that i i talked about is that putting relationships together for people dates
1: oh that's right it's so funny in the book you talk about how your friends tried to get you set up and they this is years ago back yeah. in the day in the days of yeah. war i think you call it they ran an ad in new york magazine and then they interviewed yeah. candidates and it was like you said mm-hmm. thank you I, I appreciate that but um
0: <laughs> no but so all the online you know you talk to younger people today how do you meet people you know they're they're there are five or eight companies now that target different segments uh, oh. of the market, and it's totally changed. Yes, you know, bars are still doing fine, but it's not, you know, going to a noisy bar and saying, hey, look at me, is not necessarily the best way to meet anybody these days. Um, so, you know, category by category, you know, part of the answer, you know, how do you get the right people together? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, looking at each category and saying, gee, is there a solution out there that I can use to connect these two buyers and sellers? It's traditional being a broker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because everything is so, you know, because of digitization of the world, there are more and more, and there's, there's one, if you want to give away used equipment, you know, you have a tennis racket you don't use anymore. You know, you have, you know, how do you do that? And they match you with needy families that need that thing. Oh, either in the US or other market. You know, so so you know, lots of things are happening and it's just a way to look at your service and say, you know, how could I reach more customers? Or if you if you're in the middle and say, How can I bring my customers more value? Yes. By offering something else when they visit the store or visit it online? And what other solutions could I give that, you know? I'm sure if my going back to the story, if my local hardware store said, "Look, Alan, I, I know you're ambitious here, but here's you know, Mark is over here. You know why don't you call Mark? He lives around the corner. He's a retired electrician. And before you electrocute yourself, I'm sure if you give him, you know, you know, a nice bottle of wine, he'll come over and prevent you from, you know, you're, you're causing a blackout on your street yeah. and ending up, you know, in the and emergency. electrocuting yourself. I- so that's a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah." I mean, Amazon is doing it already. Saying if you want to buy the product, if you want to buy the installation on the side, they identified third-party people who can help you. You know, do the famous. You know, you, you right. buy the the IKEA furniture and find out that you finished and you got four screws and four brackets left, and you know, you know, you can't say it's done. You have to put it all back together again because <laughs> you forgot those four brackets. So, so you know, but every business has that. And look at your business and say, how could I bring together? A solution that will broaden my relationship with the customer
1: mm-hmm. and make me the hero. Yes. And what's important to remember is that every one of those examples was started small by somebody who experienced a problem and then they took action. <laughs> and in the book, you talk about how, you know, these ideas are great. They're really, uh, it's wonderful to have them. But, Alan Adamson, what is the most important thing? beyond the ideas
0: it's it's can you execute it because everyone you know you think you have a brilliant idea and the first thing you find out is that oh my god 10 people have it 20 people and so yes it helps to see something before someone else (laughs) but the most important reason it's helpful is because it may give you some time to take three swings at it and the first one didn't hit because if you don't get it right and do it great it doesn't matter if you say i have a great new fruit drink (laughs) Uh, if it tastes terrible um, and part of part of that is you know, realizing how hard you know only only you only use you only deal with com- I back to Apple the iPad wasn't the first tablet Dell had one HP had one you know but they were the first one to get it all right from user interface even showing how it was used everyone else had their people using iPads on the desk <laughs> they you know they depicted people using iPads on a on a couch so part of it is be thankful you saw something, but then that's when the work begins.
1: Right, and they could execute it. Same with the MP3 player. They didn't invent that. Yep. Not at all. So, Alan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: To what we spent a lot of time on. You know, stop asking your customers or consumers how they like your product and service and start looking at how it fits into their lives.
1: Stop asking them what they want.
0: Yeah, And, and start observing them and trying to figure out How, where you fit in their life experience.
1: Oh, so well said. And sometimes I give a talk to groups about, you know, they say, Douglas, you've had, you know, 400 something books on the show so far and you've read them all. What, have you learned anything? And that is like one of three things that just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And I still don't quite understand why companies struggle with it, but, but they do. And uh, I appreciate you saying that. Well, let's give the listener something to do, to put in action. Remember, we talked about execution. What's one thing a listener could do today, just to put in action? One of the ideas from your book, get them thinking this way, thinking about it until the book arrives.
0: You know, try to try to. We also talked about this. You know, try to re-energize your curiosity, unlock your inner child and your toddler.
1: Go where you don't belong. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's it's. It's you know be a little bit like you know I've talked about this before be a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld yeah you go around the world and say you ever wonder why and then look at something right <laughs> that's right you know and if you start with this you know pretending you're from Mars and this is the first time you've been in a fast food restaurant or seen, picked up your dry you know just look try your best to to disconnect and start with you ever wonder why yeah blank
1: Yes, and I should say that any book where I see that Jerry Seinfeld is mentioned, I immediately fast track them and (laughs) put them up to the front of the line. Oh, it's good. Because
0: part of what made, you know, even going back to uh, his co creator, Larry David, he had an episode where he was opening a blister package uh, with, you know, and he tried to tear it open, he tried to. Cut it, and it's too hard for. It. And he then takes a hammer, and that's another consumer insight. If people say, "How do you like the product?" People have been so used to buying certain things in blister packages, they say it's fine. But trying to open a package of blister package of razors, you might need a jackhammer. <laughs> right.
1: There was uh, John Picot's book. He, he talked about experience, and he was he started the book talking about how so many people were going to the emergency room. Because they were trying to open uh, these blister packs from Amazon, whatever the product was, and they were like cutting their fingers. <laughs> at exactly. which, at right. which point Amazon said, well, you know, we don't really control that. But the point is they took ownership of it and said, look, manufacturers, there's no reason you have to send us this product that's so hard to open. It's not even yep. good for the environment. It costs more to ship. Can you do something about it? And uh, yeah, it got better. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend, or maybe looking forward to reading?
0: I just finished one uh, a couple months ago. It was the story of the Wright brothers, and I, you know, everyone knows that the Wright brothers invented flying, and you thought, I thought I knew said so they were, I knew they were bike men, but when you hear their story of how they started at a bicycle shop and how everybody, all the experts in aviation, told them they were crazy, they couldn't do it, and you know, you know, and how they just kept on going out, and the plane didn't glide. and and they were so resilient and so focused. It took them. People think they you know went to their garage, came out and flew their little plane to Paris. But it took them years on their own, and they had to do everything from their own little pocketbook because they didn't have you know, you know and they showed the military and the military this will never work no the the army there was no air either the navy or something didn't want to buy it and but they they were determined that they could do it and i for me i took away that the same lesson we started with is that to be successful in business you can't do groupthink. you have to be resilient and keep on trying see the opportunity but never give up
1: what's the title of that book
0: it was the Wright Brothers. It was their, it's a biography of their, of their journey and how they – and, you, you know, everyone thinks, oh, thing they – Oh, by they, David they, McCullough? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's phenomenal when you see how unlikely they were to, to solve this in a small Ohio town to how they just kept on prototyping, trying it, taking it back, changing the prototype, trying it again. And I think prototyping is a great way, whether you have an idea – or a product, or a service, keep on prototyping it, and it doesn't work until you get to brilliant execution.
1: Oh, wow. I or think until
0: I'd, the plane flies.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I would really enjoy that book. So, well, good. Thanks for mentioning that. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the the books all your books all the books that have been mentioned uh, your uh, company's website your LinkedIn profile your Twitter account now where do you dear listener i want to ask you a big favor Because Alan has been so generous with his time, please reach out in some way to him and and congratulate him on the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast again. He clearly has a high threshold for pain. Send him a message on you know one of those Twitter, LinkedIn, or or whatever. Uh, Guests on the show have told me they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking, Alan. And if you are listening on your smartphone, you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, which I think most people listen to. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. I hope this book will serve as a guiding light for your journey to transforming the stuff we do and reimagining your company or brand through experience. These lenses provide different ways to look at the marketplace. They help you spot opportunities to change the way we do things that others typically miss or don't see clearly. These different perspectives provide a clarity that allows you to see the opportunities that exist in the world. The book is Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do, Not Buy, to Gain Market Advantage. The author is Alan Adamson. Alan, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker, Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.